I'm Tony Hunt. If you're new here, uh, we welcome you. And we're in the midst of a series uh, called Jesus Life Reimagined. What we're doing is we're looking at, uh, at Jesus' life, how he interacted with people, his attitudes, his words, but mostly the way he lived life among people, to look at that as a template for our lives. In fact, it says in Scripture that Jesus is the exact representation of God himself. So therefore, we are seeing before our eyes in this text how God would live in human skin. Because Jesus did not consider equality with with God something to be grasped. In fact, he was God incarnate. So we are looking at his life. We're going to figure out how to live the way God would want us to live by looking at his way of interacting with people because that's what we do. Uh, We are interacting with people daily and there are many decisions we all deal with by which we can learn from Jesus on how to do so. And today we are in Luke chapter 10. So if you can turn your Bibles there, that's where we'll be, is Luke chapter 10. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at a moment of where Jesus is uh, instructing his a larger group, not just his 12, but a larger group of 72 on how to uh, do ministry in some of the towns Jesus is about to go to and how to handle failure when in those towns, in other words, rejection, and how to handle success. And that's what we're going to look at today is how do we handle success in life the way God would want us to handle success? In other words, how did Jesus handle it that, uh, that we can then take as a model for our own lives? Now, in today's culture, and again, forgive me, there's just gonna, sports analogies come easy for me, and they're also very easy to teach from. But when athletes accomplish something great, there's usually a lot of fanfare because their stadiums are filled with thousands of people. Uh, there's uh, TV where millions are watching it. And so players that are, let's say, glorifying themselves have a way of drawing more attention to who they are. Look at me. I'm a Dallas Cowboy, America's team. I just scored a touchdown, and it's all me. No quarterback threw me the ball. Nobody blocked for that quarterback. I ran untouched. It is all about me. Is this God's model for how to handle success? No, we're not the Dallas Cowboys, are we? No, we're near Philadelphia, so when we have success, this is what we do. You see, I know where I live now. It's taken me about eight years to get there. But uh, so, you know, (laughs) wow, that's about the loudest roar I've heard in this room. Uh, (laughs) Where's Jeff Travis at? He's probably right now like singing a song. But, uh, um, you know, the... There's ways of handling success, and, and we tend to admire those who handle success with grace. And, and uh, you know, there are people that will like to draw attention to themselves and say it's all about them. I mean, if you're a Steelers fan, the news has not been great lately. Uh, lots of things in the news, and it's about players that are basically saying, we did it on our own, and, and we want the attention. And they're getting lots of print. They're getting lots of media attention. But it's out of mockery. Most people are not respecting the type of attitude that they're carrying, including hardcore Steelers fans. We really do esteem those who handle success with grace. Uh, 
where they tend to acknowledge the running back that realizes that the hole that they ran through for, you know, a a 10 and 15 yard gain was created by uh, five and six guys up front that, that cleared a path that a truck could drive through. And they got that, and they're pointing that out and, and saying, great job. Or the quarterback that threw the ball to that running back that he got out on the flat and got a, a big gain off of it, acknowledging that was a perfect pass. I didn't lose my stride. I mean, those kinds of players you want to fill your team with. It's just a reality. As a coach, you want to fill your team with those types of players. It's the player that, say, that does not acknowledge anybody else for the success they might have had in a moment that was maybe created by 10 to 12 other players on the field. It's those players that uh, over time the team tires of. You see, if in success, not only in sports, we have, we have success in, in our careers and in our families, and we, and we like to be acknowledged and, 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 and draw attention to ourselves so that our standing among the family or at work can be appeased. I mean, this, and you're thinking, how does this even happen at home? Well, it's pretty easy. If, if I come home and I clean up the living room and get all the pillows ordered up and fold the blankets and, and I kind of bring order to the kitchen, my wife will come home from work and I'm like waiting for her to say thank you honey the house looks great an hour later nothing and I start saying you know the kitchen's rather orderly isn't it <laughs> and do you see how the living room looks and oh yeah that's nice you know, there's just something about that we want to be praised we want to get glory for anything we do but then it kind of takes away from the heart behind it, does it not? If you're trying to serve, but you need glory for it. You see, I think there's something innate in all of us that we want to be acknowledged as something great. We've been looking at greatness. Jesus is dealing with the subject of greatness regularly, and, and, and that's going to be one of the pitfalls of, of doing work with God because God's power is amazing. And when God manifests his power through you, it's very easy to start celebrating yourself rather than the source by which gave you that authority and power to do what maybe God had you do. And so in this text, we're going to see how Jesus handles success and even models it before his disciples intentionally. And so we're going to begin by reading in verse 1 of Luke chapter 10. So let's go there. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will re return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Let me stop there. So basically, 
you have in the previous text over the last few weeks, we looked at when Jesus actually took from out of all his disciples, which there were several hundred up to 500 at this time, several hundred disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. So disciples are our followers. So he had several hundred followers, but they chose 12 apostles and apostles are sent ones. So some are following and others are being sent. And so up to this point, there's been 12. Jesus is now appointing and sending 72. And these 72, he's sending into the towns that he is about to go to. So they're forerunners. They're preparing the way. And so it was a great opportunity because these followers had seen the apostles doing some pretty incredible things. I mean, they've seen miracles being done by these apostles. They're seeing uh, the casting out of demons by these apostles. And so now they're getting their opportunity to be sent by Jesus as well. It's great news. Um, but as part of this sending, he says a couple statements that are very interesting. He says to him, so I'm sending you to the towns I'm about to go to. But I, and, and I'm sending you there and there is a harvest that is plentiful where you're going. So in other words, you will have success. There are many that are going to receive what you're going to share. That's great news. So many are going to respond. There is a harvest. It's good. And, and it'll be plentiful. So you're going where it's going to be ripe for harvest. This is good news. Then he says, and I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. Not so good a news. When you think about it, what defense does a lamb have with a wolf? Nothing. Not in and of themselves. Now they have a shepherd, and that's their only defense, but it's not them among themselves. There's nothing. They have nothing. They, they can't, like, go, bah, and scare the wolf, right? And don't ask me to do that again. But you can't, you can't, there's nothing, and you can't outrun. You're going to be the slowest of the whole flock. So you're the one that's most vulnerable. And so Jesus says to these 72, I'm sending you to these towns. I'm about to go. And when you get there, harvest is going to happen. Great news. And I need to tell you, there will be wolves out there. And you will feel like lambs among them. Vulnerable. So that's kind of discouraging news for them, but they are able to handle it. And, and so he says some other things, some guidelines. So he tells them, when you go to these towns, choose one house. Stay there. And when you're at that house and they're welcoming you, eat what they put before you. So don't worry about asking all these questions like, was this food coming from this place that was offered to an aisle? Just, just eat what's before you, enjoy it, and continue to serve. But then his final statement had to have amazed them because he says, I'm going to give you power to heal people wherever you go. Now these 72 had watched the 12 apostles heal and cast out demons. Now they're being sent and Jesus says, I am going to give you authority to heal people. And when that happens, he gives them a very clear instruction. Say that the, power, the kingdom of God has come near you. So when they heal, they're associating the power of the healing to the kingdom of God. 
Now, Jesus is the kingdom of God. He's the manifestation of the kingdom of God. So he is telling them, you're going to be able to heal. This is going to be amazing. You're going to be able to heal. But when you do and there's success, make sure to say, the kingdom of God has come near you. So it's associating the power with something greater than themselves. So let's continue reading verse 10. He says, But when you enter a town and you're not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we will wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. If you know your Bible, Sodom comes from the Old Testament. And what happened to Sodom? God annihilated that town. It was, in fact, Sodom and Gomorrah are, are the terms are intrinsically tied to the wrath of God. And so because of what happened to him, God's wrath being so devastating that when you hear the term Sodom or Gomorrah, you immediately associate it with the wrath of God. And he is saying here that if a town rejects you, you are to say the kingdom of God has come near, but it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for you for rejecting the kingdom of God when it came near. That would have been received in the Jewish culture as a very damning uh, uh, prophecy to them because they're hearing that the worst city in the history of mankind who received the worst judgment and wrath of God, their knowledge tells them that. They're now being told that the judgment will be worse for them for having rejected the kingdom of God that had come near them. Then he goes on in verse 13. And woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment for you. And you, Capernaum, and you, Capernaum, will be lifted to the heavens. Will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Now, what's Hades? Hell. So what is he saying here? He's listing a bunch of towns that Jesus has gone to. And he's saying for those who have rejected Jesus, the kingdom of God, that it will be more bearable for, town, for, for towns that have never heard the gospel than for those who have heard the gospel and rejected it. But then he points out in particular Capernaum. Capernaum was considered the headquarters of Jesus. During his early years of ministry around the Sea of Galilee, it was Capernaum where Jesus stayed the most. That's where you know that, that the brothers were all from. So Peter and Andrew, James and John were all Capernaum uh, residents. And so he's saying that of, of all the places, Capernaum, by rejecting the gospel, the kingdom of God, you have then damned yourself to hell itself. Now keep in mind, Jesus is saying all this as instructions to these 72. They're excited. It's our turn. We get to go. And then he tells them, okay, when rejected, you're telling them that judgment's going to be worse than Sodom. 
And for Capernaum, the, the, the town that we've been hanging out in the most is going to be in, at risk of hell itself. Well, that's not exciting to share. That's not what I want to say. But yet, that's the message they're being given for when you reject the Son of God and you reject the message of the kingdom of God, you have accepted a wrath and a judgment that is eternal. But then he says in verse 16, something that was very important in the instructions for these 72. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So his final words and instructions before he sends them off to these towns that Jesus is about to go is to remind them that whatever acceptance they receive, whatever rejection they receive, it's not at them. It's to Jesus. And it's not even to Jesus alone. It's to the Father, the creator of the universe. Because it's very easy that when you go in and you succeed and you're being blessed and received, say, ah, oh, they like me. But it's also easy when they reject you, when you're doing something for the glory of God, that when they reject you, that you feel like they don't like me. And you make it too much about you. And he's saying, no, listen, whoever listens to you is listening to me. Whoever rejects you is rejecting me. And not only me, but the Father God, Yahweh, as you know him, Yahweh, the great I am, he is the one they're ultimately rejecting. Then he sends them out with these instructions. So they go like lambs among wolves, but yet to a harvest that is going to be plentiful. So they come back. And they're, they're having the reunion with Jesus and they're about to debrief everything that has just happened. They're not walking back as bleeding lambs. In fact, they come back filled with incredible joy and amazement because they found success. Look at verse 17. It says, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons, even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus responds in verse 18. says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he begins with this little moment that, that was not so small where he says that I, I see Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, he's forecasting and seeing and envisioning the, the, the fall of Satan himself, which is going to come. And he sees it in this moment, the forecast, the foreshadowing of a great moment. But he's celebrating with them because they were amazed at the authority they had been given. I mean, think about this. If you had never seen any, uh, anybody ever delivered of evil spirits, but yet demon-possessed people were common. It was very common. We talked about that last week. Satan's very overt in other parts of the world and the way he lives and manifests his power. And so they were used to seeing people with, with demonic uh, activity in them and being possessed. And so to see somebody actually have authority over those demons was surreal to them. And now 
they were able to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And so they were blown away by this moment. And so Jesus celebrates with them. He sees that this is incredible, that they are discovering that, that they, these Galileans, these tax collectors, these fishermen, these carpenters, these shopkeepers, these people that were not the, the wise and learned, the governance or the, or the priesthood or the Levites, none of them were those kind of people, yet this is the very group God gives that authority to. So they are amazed, and Jesus celebrates with them. He celebrates that this, this authority, this spiritual realm authority that is so powerful now has to submit to these many people, unimportant people, the least likely of people, and for that matter, people at all. They are now having to submit. Angels that have existed for thousands of years are now having to submit to these human beings here in the Galilean area. So Jesus does celebrate that moment with them, that this incredible group of people that would be so unlikely now has that kind of power. But in verse 20, they, you know, or I'm sorry, in verse 19, he celebrates this, and I want to make a point to this because it might have caught your attention. He says, I see that Satan fell like lightning from heaven, and, and he celebrates because they now have power and authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. Anybody kind of question that? Kind of a strange statement, isn't it? Well, you need to know that in, in that time, in Middle Eastern culture, snakes and scorpions were also symbolic of spiritual power. Okay, so uh, it, it's not, most commentarians, very, in fact, the vast majority of commentarians agree this is symbolic. It's not literal trampling on snakes and scorpions. There are cultic groups that believe this was literal. And so they worship with snakes in their sanctuaries and scorpions in their sanctuaries. And it's bizarre stuff. And you can find it online. And it's extremely bizarre. And they say that God's given us authority to do it. Meanwhile, many of them have been bit, bitten and many of them have died as a result of those bites with handling snakes as part of their worship. So that's cultic behavior. What Jesus is speaking here is the symbolic nature of scorpions and snakes that were used in their culture to reflect spiritual forces that God is saying, I'm giving you power over these spiritual forces, the ones of snakes or the ones of scorpions that you might see symbolically representing. And then he goes on to say, but in this, in this authority, you need to remember something. And this is where the caution comes. You need to remember, not so much to celebrate that you have that authority, but to celebrate that you have salvation. You see, in their elation, which he's not criticizing. He does not criticize they celebrated. He does not criticize that they're excited and pumped about this ability now that they've been given this authority. But he wanted to make sure that their attitude in that celebration was gratefulness. Is gratefulness. Because they did not deserve that authority and power. In fact, they were not the source of that authority and power. And so he wants them to remember that you have been given a great gift in your own salvation. You've been given eternity and that your names are written in that book of life because of the salvation provided you. So remember that. So when you have this amazing experience, this successful moment, be grateful for what you were given. Be grateful for what you were given. 
Then moving on, verse 21, Jesus then, after giving them some instructions, he celebrates with them, he cries out this, this great moment of forecasting the fall of Satan, and then saying, you know, I think this is awesome that, that people like you now have this authority over angels that have existed for all these centuries, and now he then speaks directly to the Father God for all to hear, and here's where we take our cue. At that time, Jesus, verse 21, at that time, Jesus, full of joy. So he is celebrating. His spirit is good. Even when he tells them, make sure that you are grateful for that your names are written in heaven. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, says this. I praise you, Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, the ones you would expect to give such power and authority to. Instead, you kept it from them and gave it to these little children. Yes, Father, for this is what pleased you to do. Remember last week when I was teaching, if you were here, we talked about the rights of a child. There weren't any. In that culture, a child had no rights, no, no significant honor, no positions. They were there. They, they, they received protection, but there were no rights. Their households did not operate around the success of the children. Unlike in our culture, everything about the house operates around the children's schedule. We make sure that we give them all the opportunities. We don't want them to fall behind other kids. So we, we drive them to all kinds of locations so that they can do their arts or their sports or, or whatever clubs they're a part of. We make sure in our house, our dinner times, and our schedule with the vehicles all evolve around children to where the children begin to think that I'm the most important thing in this house just happens but in their culture children were not that valued I mean they were valued in to having but they didn't have any rights there wasn't any operation around them that, that affected the adults lifestyle so to say that you have given this authority and power to children little children was to say, you've given this authority and power to those who have no position, who have no rights, who have no influence. And that's who God was pleased to give this authority and power to. That's significant. And so Jesus is having a celebration with God, saying, you know, keep in mind, who did they say they were able to do this casting out of demons in the name of? Jesus, right? In the name of Jesus, they were able to cast out demons. It says in verse 16, we were able to do, I mean, I'm sorry, not in verse 16, in verse 17, we were able to do this in your name, Lord. Many things happened. And then he says, yeah, yes. I said, there will be people that will accept you in my name. There will be people who will reject you because of my name. But even in verse 16, he says, but they're not just accepting you in my name or rejecting you in my name. They're also accepting and rejecting the Father. Jesus maintains the centrality of the Father God. And now here in this moment when there's celebration going on that these little children, those who had no rights, those who had no, uh, uh, shouldn't have been given the opportunity for this. Jesus celebrates that the Father chose them of all people to have such power and authority. 
and praises God for it. You see, this pleases God to give it to the unlikely because if it's the unlikely people manifesting this incredible power, then what are you left with? There's no way a fisherman, a carpenter, a tax collector, a shopkeeper, uh, uh, somebody who's been rejected by family, there's no way they would have that kind of power and authority. They've never been taught to do that. So then you're left to think, well, then where does the power come from? Because you know it's not with from them. They're not the source of it, which then immediately begs the opportunity to question, who's the source of your power? Father God. It goes up. It doesn't stay here. And so keep in mind, there is a model for then when God does something great in your life, where your heart and mind should turn. So here's four things that I would say that you can learn from this text about handling success. First one being, it's totally okay to celebrate. Celebrating the moment with pure joy is embraced. Jesus did it with them. They were excited about this opportunity to having been a part of something incredible. It's okay to celebrate successes in our lives. It's okay to do that, to have that moment where you did that piano recital exactly as you had practiced, or to have had that moment of, of where your, your artwork is praised by the judges, or that at work you were given that opportunity to be promoted to a high position, or to, in another situation, be given an academic scholarship because of all your hard work in the classroom. It's okay to celebrate it but do so with humility. It's not about you. Recognizing, and, and, and this is where the second thing, we can celebrate, but we must be humble about it. And this is where the definition I've used over and over about the word humility comes into play. It's recognizing that God and others are responsible for the achievements in my life. Humility is recognizing that all the achievements that have happened in my life come from other people's investment in me, and God designing me and helping me along the way. So in those moments where you're celebrating, you're immediately humble because of how many people have helped you get there, and that God is at the source of it all, which then leads to the third thing, which is being grateful keeping an eternal perspective over this whole, all of this. Any successes we have are all temporal here. So be grateful then for the greatest gift ever received, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So we celebrate, and yes, celebrate with full joy, but we do so humbly recognizing that others have made that happen, including God himself, and we're grateful for it. We, we show the expression, we're thankful for all those who have invested in us, in particular, God's design and investment of us as well. But then this, that's all internal. You know, we celebrate, we're humble, we're grateful, but then this is the most important part. We glorify God not ourselves. We glorify God, not ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. It ends this whole thought by saying this. So whether by word or deed, do all to the glory of God. No matter what we do, there's a lot of things that we're permitted to do. 
Sports, athletics, things like that are great. There's nothing bad about them. There's great things to be able to do in the arts. There's great things to go and do in nature. There's great things to do even in the careers we pursue. There's great things that can happen within our families and and the advancement of our families and successes that can happen. Those are all good things. But who are we glorifying? The patriarch here on this earth? The matriarch here on this earth? The individual, the kid, glorifying them, putting them on a pestle where they think they're the next God incarnate child? No. We immediately, we take our kid, we celebrate them when there's something that good has happened in their life, and then we say, I am so thankful for what God has done in you and giving you this opportunity. What if parents, when there's a moment of success with their kid, would celebrate the moment but immediately start pointing to what God has done in their life? It would keep that moment from being so self-centered and focused on them and realizing they should be grateful for what God has done in their life. And then you hopefully are instilling in them by teaching that look at all these people that have invested in you along the way. These teachers these co-workers, perhaps these coaches, maybe even your parents, have invested so that that moment could even be possible. But most of all, where did those coaches come from? Where did those teachers come from? Where did those co-workers come from? Was it just happenstance that they, they were in your life at certain points? Or was there a God orchestrating something all around your life to give you the moments that you're being given. So who gets glory in your life? Are you about pointing to the name on the back of your jersey? Are you about beating your chest, look what I just did? Or are you celebrating the moment saying, thank you, God, thank you, I give you glory? Let's pray. Father God, I'm embarrassed by how many times I stole the glory. And I know that was fleeting because there's not much to glorify in my life. You say that if we want the praise from men, good, then you got all you want. But don't expect anything from you if you choose your praise from men. And God, I don't want that. We're just creatures of habit that want to be appreciated and affirmed. And I know that you want to show us that we are affirmed in you and, and that there is good things to come from, from encouragement and affirmation from others. But if we just keep it to ourselves, we miss the opportunity to point to heaven where there's a great orchestrator in you. So God, forgive us when we've stolen your glory and kept it for ourselves, beating our chest or pointing to our name. Forgive us if we've done that. Help us to be grateful for, yes, our eternity that is established by Jesus. Help us to have that kind of eternal perspective. How great it is that you would give salvation to someone like us. So we give you glory now as we remember and are grateful for the greatest act ever to have happened on the face of this earth. The act of submitting to the cross, not do him, and then raising from the grave three days later, 
thus defeating death ultimately. All that was manifested in your son, Jesus, all by the plan that you had from the beginning. So in this moment, be glorified, Father. And Jesus, by your name, we can even approach the Father and have hope for victory. So we exalt your name as we remember you in this moment. Jesus, may you find us to be a grateful people, humbled by whatever successes we might experience in life. But may you find that with every success or every rejection or every failure, there is glory that comes to you by the way we handle it, drawing attention to you and not ourselves. Jesus, we glorify you and your name. You're the name that is above any of ours in this room. And we're truly, truly humbled that we can then count on eternity because of what you've done. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So as that song says, yours is the kingdom, as is it's his kingdom, not ours. We're part of it, but it's his kingdom. Yours is the glory. It's his glory, not the glory of us, and it's yours is the name, not our name. Let's not advance the name that might be on the back of your jersey or might be the name on your business card or the name that is on your post office box, but rather let's bear more, more uh, excitedly the name we carry in Jesus Christ as Christians, followers of him. Let his name be exalted by the way we live. So in the name of Jesus, I send you out to his glory. Amen. You're dismissed.